Sometimes people suggest that if the Holy Spirit were really in our church, people would be speaking in tongues and, and dancing in the aisles. But the Spirit works differently at different times and in different places. Many years ago, a visitor uh, said to me, I think she was giving me a compliment, she said, Ward Church, wow, is a great church. And she went on to talk about why it's a great church. It's Bible-centered and missionary-sending, and it's active uh, in the, with the poor, and it's active locally, it's active in the city of Detroit. Ward Church is a great church. And then she added this line, imagine if the Spirit ever got a hold of it. And I want us to be very clear on the role the Holy Spirit plays and has played in our church in these past 67 years. Every time anything good or lasting has ever happened here, anytime the gospel has been proclaimed, anytime a seeker has heard the good news that Jesus saves, anytime God's name has been lifted up in praise and worship, anytime God's face has been sought in prayer, Anytime somebody cheerfully and graciously gave money that they could have kept for themselves. Anytime one believer paused to rejoice or mourn with another. Anytime somebody took time out of their schedule to serve a child. Anytime a sinner was convicted of sin, repented, was baptized, and their name was entered into the book of life. It was the Holy Spirit of the living God moving and prompting and filling and rejoicing in the midst of God's people and he is not finished yet. Friends, there's gold in your story. It's talking to a neighbor across the street, talking to a coworker in the lunchroom, talking to a stranger on the airplane, talking to a family member in the living room. So how might God use your story? If Jesus is in your story, then your story is worth sharing. Well, good morning, all of you gathered with me here at the Farmington Hills campus, and those of you joining us out there at Farmington Hills campus, uh, Northville and Farmington Hills together, and all of you uh, joining us online from places near and far. All year long, we have been studying together the New Testament book of Acts, and we conclude today. Now, all the Bible is inspired by God, every word, every sentence, every phrase, uh, every, uh, everything is uh, important and useful. Every word is God's word. But I went out on a limb earlier this year and I told you that uh, the book of Acts might be my personal favorite book in all the Bible. It's the story of the birth and expansion of the church and it's raw and earthy and real. They, they did not get everything right. They were figuring this out as they went. Uh, they weren't a perfect church, not by a long shot, but they loved each other and they loved their neighbors in such ways that people took notice in ways that foundationally changed the world. And I want to go out on that limb again this morning and admit to you that I have a favorite part of my favorite book of the Bible, and I'll tell you about that in just a few moments. But before I do that, I want to call out some places that I have seen the book of Acts in you over this past year. You all received a copy, perhaps, of the annual report. If you did not get one of these on your way in, make sure you get one on the way out and read through the reports of all the ministry leaders and look at all the photographs and the stories and the stats and take some time to celebrate and give thanks to God for all that God has done in and through us over this past year. 
I want to tell you about some of the numbers that stood out to me this year in this year's report. As the scripture was read this morning, we heard read that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And I read in this report that more than 1,800 of you have engaged in a Bible study or a small group or a group of some kind this past year. 1,800 plus people have sat with others with their Bibles open, and I think that's a stat to celebrate for us as a church today. I read that there are 70 small groups met this last year, 70 home-based small groups. If you haven't gotten into one of those yet, you might want to try that. More than 700 people are involved in a small group. I also read, uh, thinking about this line, they devoted themselves to prayer. And our people pray in a lot of different ways. But an interesting stat I found in this year's report uh, that I didn't expect to see is that the deacons pray for all of the prayer requests that come in on the app every Sunday morning when you fill out the Connect card. And the stat says that they prayed, the deacons prayed for 4,264 prayer requests this last year. That's another, another stat to celebrate. We heard the scriptures read, they gave to anyone as had need, and uh, some interesting stats uh, here for last year. The the previous year, the year before last year, we collected 150 coats and blankets. That was two years ago, 150 coats and blankets in the blanket drive, coat drive. This year, 500 coats were given. There's some interesting stats, yeah. Similarly, uh, the year before the last year, 440 toys were given uh, for, the, for the, the Christmas store that we operate in central Detroit at Christmas time. Uh, two years ago, 440. This year, 750 toys were given. There's something going on in the hearts of our people right now, uh, stirring levels of generosity that we have not seen uh, previously. And it appears from our report that the need is greater than it's ever been. Uh, again, two years ago, 150 families came every Monday morning to collect groceries from our Forgotten Harvest grocery drive. Two years ago, 150. This year, that number rose to 260 families on any given Monday morning. And, and our teams are, are serving them. I saw that our grief programs have doubled in attendance this last year. And then we have a disaster relief team. This is something you might want to be a part of if you have flexibility in your schedule. The disaster relief team, uh, I think of them as keeping a a packed suitcase by their door. And whenever there's some kind of national emergency somewhere, uh, they're deployed. They have the opportunity to grab that suitcase and go. And this year, ward folks were deployed six times. Think of how many natural disasters happened in the last 12 months. And uh, maybe that's a team you want to be a part of. And then I saw that, uh, that in our fight against human trafficking that we've especially emphasized this last year, you gave it such levels of generosity that at the, the town we work with in Thailand, they created a bakery, a computer lab, and a counseling program that will all serve and employ the women who've been rescued from human trafficking in the city in Thailand. And that's some of it. Just great stuff. These are not just stats. There are lives behind these. Um, We launched a new campus in Farmington Hills this past year. It was actually a relaunch. Um, Ward adopted our daughter church 
Grace Chapel uh, back into the family, and then a core group made up of former Grace Chapel members and some Ward Church members uh, went out to start a fresh expression of Ward Church that is locally and relationally focused. And that campus out there right now is eight months old, uh, taking our first steps. A lot of you are out there right now celebrating with us right now. And that campus is making a unique impact, uh, leaning into their English as a second language. Their ESL is a unique a hallmark for this campus and lots of other ways that are localized efforts. Um, a new campus in Farmington Hills. So glad you're a part of it, those of you there. So really, thank you all, Northville, Farmington Hills, wherever you may be. Thank you for, for studying, for praying, for serving, for giving, and for risking this past year. When we study the Bible together, as we have done in the New Testament book of Acts, our goal is not to, you know, learn about the church. Our goal is to be the church, and I want to thank you for being the church to one another and to a watching world over these last 12 months. Thank you all very much. Now, I want to go on record and tell you about my favorite part of the book of Acts, and it's chapter 29. And I would like to invite all of you to turn in your Bibles, wherever you are, to Acts chapter 29, and a lot of you are already realizing that it's not there. The written record of Acts ends at 28. And some of you were turning your Bibles just so the people around you wouldn't feel silly because they didn't know that, right? Uh, And the reason chapter 29 is my favorite part of the book of Acts is because it hasn't been written yet. The book of Acts is closed, but the story of the church goes on, and it's still being written to this day. It's being written all around the world, wherever followers of Jesus gather, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people, and it is being written right here. The story of the church is being written by the person sitting next to you. The gospel is being proclaimed and lived out in in her workplace, in his classroom, in their neighborhood. The story goes on. God is still searching for lost and dying men and women and bringing them to eternal life. The Holy Spirit is still alive and active and present today. God did not exhaust all of God's power in the first century A.D. That wasn't the the story, uh, the end of the story of the church. That was the beginning of the story of the church. God continues to write chapters in the never-ending story of the church, and he continues to write them through ordinary people like us. One of the things we saw together in our study of the book of Acts was how remarkably ordinary the people were through whom God worked in the first century. And God continues to do so. And this is our day. There were men and women who came before us. There are people who will come after us. But this is our day to write our chapter in the story of the hope of the world. So I want to get kind of personal about this today and ask you, what part do you want to write? When they look back in history and look at the chapter of this moment in time and they get to the paragraph with your name on it, what do you want it to say? And this morning, I want to trace through some of the key transitional lines from the book of Acts and see if these don't hold some truth for us that will help us as we write our chapter. And for each of these transitional phrases, we'll talk about a truth, and I'll ask a a, a question and give a one-word answer to kind of make these concepts kind of memorable. And the first passage I want to look at is this one, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
but you will receive power, this is a very key verse, when you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and this is Jesus speaking, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now we've talked extensively in this series about the Holy Spirit who is the prominent character in the book of Acts. The book is called the Acts of the Apostles, but we'd said it, better be called, it would better be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But for now, I want you to notice, who is the church? Who is Jesus speaking to when he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you? And you will be my witnesses. Who is Jesus speaking to? Who is the you? And the you is you. Yeah, (laughs) the you is us. I think a lot of people are tempted to read verses like this, either historical or institutional. Historical, that Jesus is speaking to first century people in a unique context or that he's speaking institutionally. This is for organizations, institutions, professional clergy. But the you is all of us. We are the church. These final words of Jesus were very transitional and daunting. Those, those followers of Jesus have been with Jesus for three years, and now Jesus ascends to be with his Father in heaven. These are his final words that he spoke. And now the ministry of Jesus continues in the people of Jesus, in his church. The church is people. The church is us. So who is the church? Us. Us. We had an executive director, Barry McKenna, when he and I were working on who needs to handle this problem. Can we delegate this to someone else, or does this need to be, need to be us? And we'd come to an issue. He would go, yeah, I think this one, this one has to be us. This one's us, and then he would say, and when I say us, I mean us without the S. (laughs) No, this is not you, this is us. Who is the church? Us. All right, uh, second uh, passage. This is from Acts 2.47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And the question I want to ask here is, who is it that's at work? The Lord, the Lord added to their number daily. It doesn't say they did this, the people did this through clever strategies or persuasive techniques. It does not say that. It says God did it. The Lord added to their number daily. Now, the people weren't passive. They were active. They shared their faith. They were obedient. They did stuff. But under it all and through it all, it is God who is at work. It is God who is still at work. And so we can be bold. Came across a great story of boldness written by a pastor. This pastor writes about being on an airplane seated next to a well-dressed businessman. And the pastor was wearing old jeans and a ratted out t-shirt. And he's feeling a little insecure sitting next to this very professional looking person who seems to be about the same age as the pastor. So the pastor wants to avoid a conversation about career or occupation or what do you do for a living. And this is what he writes uh, in this book. But, but all that changed when, when he had already turned and greeted me. I said I was fine, of course, and realizing I had to beat him to the punchline, I asked him what he did, and he was only too eager to respond, I'm in the figure salon business, he said. We can change a woman's self-concept by changing her body. It's a very profound, powerful thing. His pride spoke between the lines. You look about my age, I said. Have you been at this long? 
I just graduated from the University of Michigan's Business Administration School, and they've given me so much responsibility already, and I feel very honored. In fact, I hope to eventually manage the western part of the operation. So you're a national organization, I asked, becoming impressed despite myself. Oh, yes, we're the fastest-growing company of our kind in the nation. It's really good to be part of an organization like that, don't you think? I nodded approvingly, and I thought, impressive. Proud of his work and his accomplishments? Why can't Christians be proud like that? Why are we so often apologetic about our faith and about our church? Looking askance at my clothing, he asked the inevitable question, and what do you do? The spirit began to brood over the face of the deep. Order and power emerged from the chaos. A voice in a whisper reminded me, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's interesting that we have similar business interests, I said. You're in the body-changing business. I'm in the personality-changing business. We apply basic theocratic principles to accomplish indigenous personality modification. (laughs) He was hooked, but he would never admit it. Pride is a powerful thing. You know, I've, I've heard about that, he said. But do you have an office here in the city? Oh, we have many offices, I said. We have offices up and down the state. In fact, we're national. We have at least one office in every state in the Union, including Alaska and Hawaii. He had this puzzled look on his face. He was searching his mind to identify this huge company that he must have read about somewhere, perhaps in his Wall Street Journal. As a matter of fact, I said we've gone international, and management has a plan to, to put at least one office in every country in the world by the end of this business era. I paused. Do you have that in your business? Well, no, not yet, he answered. But you mentioned management. How do they make it work? It's a family concern, I said. There's a father and a son, and they run everything. <laughs> it must take a lot of capital, he asked skeptically. You mean money, I said, I suppose. No one knows how much it takes, but we never worry because there's never a shortage. The boss always seems to have enough. He's a very creative guy, and the money, well, it's just there. In fact, those of us in the organization have a saying about our boss. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. (laughs) Oh, he's into ranching too, asked my friend. (laughs) No, it's just a saying we use to indicate his wealth. My friend sat back in his seat, musing over our conversation. What about with you, he asked. The employees, I said, there's something to see. They have a spirit that pervades the organization. It works like this. The father and the son love each other so much that their love filters down through the organization so that we all find ourselves loving one another too. I know this sounds old-fashioned in a world like ours, but I know that people in my organization are willing to die for me. Do you have that in your organization? I was almost shouting now. People were starting to shift noticeably in their seats. Uh, Not yet, he said. (laughs) Quickly changing strategies, he said, but do you have good benefits? They're substantial, I said. (laughs) I have complete life insurance, fire insurance, all the basics. And you may not believe this, but it's true. I have holdings in a mansion that's being built for me right now in retirement. Do you have that in your business? (laughs) Not yet, he answered wistfully. The light was dawning. You know, one thing bothers me about all that you've said. I've read the journals, and if your business is all that you say it is, why haven't I heard about it before now? That's a good question, I said. After all, we have a 2,000-year-old tradition. Wait a minute, he said. You're right, I interrupted. I'm talking about the church. And then he goes on to write about how they became friends in that conversation. 
Who is at work? God. God is at work. All right, let's look at another uh, passage. Acts chapter 6. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And then this detail is added. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Why is that significant? Priests are becoming obedient to the faith because priests are the last people anybody thought would be responsive to the gospel because the priests had the most to lose. And then in a similar pattern, later in the book of Acts, people are surprised when the Gentiles, when the non-Jewish people start to respond to the gospel. And a lot of this, you remember, is in the book of Acts. In fact, in chapter 10, uh, the, the disciples, the Jewish disciples, were very surprised when non-Jewish people started to come into faith in Jesus. This is what one of the verses says in chapter 10. Circumcised believers, Jewish people, followers of Jesus, who had come with Peter were what? They were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. They were like, we did not see that coming. Like the Holy Spirit, the Gentiles for crying out loud, this thing has gone crazy. They're surprised. They're astounded by it. And, and here's, the, here's the question. Who's too far away from God for the gospel? Who's too far away that they don't deserve, that they don't merit someone going to them with the gospel? Who's too far away? And the answer is no one, nobody. No one's too far away. Because in the book of Acts, everybody that people would have thought was, they thought were going to say no are the people that end up saying yes. Never say no for somebody else because we don't know. When we lived in England, uh, we became friends with an, uh, another American couple, Ted and Kathy. Actually, our wives became friends, friends through an American women's association. That's often, and then they brought their husbands into the friendship. That's the way it often works. In fact, guys, we really wouldn't have many friends if our wives didn't, didn't have husbands. Yeah. And so we got to know Ted and Kathy, and, uh, and uh, Ted was kind of a gruff, loud, uh, cussing guy who, who drank uh, too much, totally not, not churched, and uh, we enjoyed them, but I, I didn't, I didn't uh, broach any religious conversations with them. I just had a sense this was not something that was going to go. And then, uh, and then one weekend, uh, Angie says to me, hey, Ted and Kathy are coming to church tomorrow. I was like, Ted and Kathy are coming to church tomorrow? Is, any, is everything okay? Uh, yeah, and, and Ted, is, he's open to this? Uh, yeah, they're coming to church. And I was the associate pastor there. I didn't, I didn't preach every Sunday, but I preached that Sunday. And, uh, and Ted came up, and in his boisterous, loud, unmistakable way, he says, hey, Scott, that was a heck of a talk you just gave. Really, heck of a... And he didn't say heck. He's using other, <laughs> other words, and he was really, really loud. And, and uh, I was... I, I would never have invited him. I thought he was a slam dunk no, and he was more open than I knew. Never say somebody else's no. You don't know. Who's too far? Nobody. Nobody. So let's review. Who's the church? Us. Who's the church? Who's at work? God. Who's too far away? Nobody. Nobody. All right, fourth passage. 
chapter 13, another milestone. The church stops being surprised that people are responding to the gospel and they actually lean into it and they begin to send out intentional missionaries. They send out Paul and Barnabas to go to all the known world. And Paul and Barnabas share the gospel with Jews and with non-Jews. And then this is what it says in chapter 13. When the Gentiles that they were sharing with, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And the question here is, what's at stake with the gospel? And the answer is, eternal life. This is no casual thing. We're not... We're not we're not writing the next chapter in the story of the church so that we've got someplace to go on Sundays or so that we've got some social club, even so that we can have our own needs met. We need to be the church so the people outside these walls can know life and life eternal. And we need to have some urgency around this, not, not, not guilt, but urgency because God has a sense of urgency about this. And maybe if you're like me, you recognize in your own heart your urgency around this tends to wane, tends to dissipate. And maybe God's going to stir some urgency in us. The whole story of the glorious church in four questions. Who is the church? Us. Who's at work? God. Who's too far away? Nobody. And what's at stake? Eternity. Eternity. And this is your day. This is our day to write our part in the glorious story of the church. Now look with me at the very final line from the book of Acts, chapter 28, the very conclusion. Now remember that Paul uh, did make it to Rome. Paul longed to go to Rome because Rome was the center of the empire. Rome was the center of the world. And Paul just knew if I could get to Rome, if I could get the gospel to Rome, then the gospel would go all around the, the world. And Paul did make it to Rome, you remember, but he made it there as a prisoner. Not the way he thought he would make it to Rome. And he's in chains, but he's under house arrest. And so he's got a lot of freedom, actually, in his early days at Rome. And this is the final line, the final two sentences from the book of Acts. For two whole years, Paul stayed there. He was under arrest in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. The end, book of Acts, over. Now, as modern-day readers, we want to ask, well, whatever happened to Paul? Did he make his appeal before Caesar, the emperor? Did, did he live? Did he die? And the author, Luke, never says. Why does he never say? Ultimately, it doesn't really matter. This was never about Paul. This is about Jesus and being the witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that includes Northville and Farmington Hills and Novi and Plymouth and Canton and all of the cities around us. Paul was seized by some core convictions. He knew deep within him the answer to these four questions, and I want you to shout the answers out loud. Who is the church? Us. Who's at work? God. Who's too far away? Nobody. What's at stake? And when you know the answer to these four questions, you can share Jesus boldly and without hindrance. Paul knew that he was giving his life to the only thing that really matters. 
And when you know that, what's, what's going to stop you? Embarrassment? Busyness? Fear? Paul knew that this gospel of Jesus was worth his life. The people that wrote chapter 28 knew that this was worth their lives. And the people that will write the chapter after the next chapter, they will be seized by the same conviction. I'm going to ask you to bow in prayer for a moment. I want to guide you in a time for you to pray. Will you ask God right now what he wants you to write in the story of his church? The first century book of Acts is closed. We're not adding to that. But the story of the church continues in the 21st century. Ask God what role he wants you to play in his never-ending story. Maybe God wants to use you to model a dynamic community, a small group of people who love each other and love their neighbors. Maybe it's in a house. Maybe God wants to use you like Barnabas to give financially with no strings attached in ways that encourage the whole community. Maybe you've been a bit casual in sharing Jesus and God's talking to you right now about increasing your sense of urgency. Maybe God's asking you to start by getting to know your neighbors, getting out of your insulated bubble and just get to know some people. Maybe God's asking you to serve or lead because you know the church needs servants and leaders. Maybe God's calling some of you here in the Farmington Hills campus to go join those who serve and lead at the Farmington Hills campus. Maybe God will, in your prayer, bring a, a face of a person in mind. Somebody who needs Jesus, somebody who needs encouragement, somebody who needs tangible help. Maybe right now in prayer, God's, God's bringing to your mind a face or a name. Tell God how you feel about him. Confess where you've stopped short. And commit to do whatever God asks you to do. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for speaking to us. Use us to write the next chapter in the story of your church to the glory of our great God. And all of God's people, all the church agreed together and said with one voice, in Jesus' name, amen.